0: welcome we hope you enjoy this recording from christ city church based in dublin ireland for more podcasts and information on the church please visit christcitychurch.ie thank you for listening If I haven't met you, nice to have you here. My name is Steve. I'm one of the guys that helps run this course. And so, by popular vote, we had the question because night six is up for grabs on who is Jesus and linked to that is the Bible reliable. So, we've thought about the meaning of life. Week one, we thought about what is truth. Week two, we thought about what is true love. Week three, we thought about life after death and is there such a thing as a resurrection. Week four, we thought about suffering. Week five, and every week, We've tried to say, well, maybe Jesus has the answers. So it's natural to go, well, who is he? And what can we know about him? Very famously, C.S. Lewis put it like this in his book, Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You have to make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He never intended to. Great quote. My my aim tonight is to prove Lewis's point. And you can disagree and we always say no questions too feisty no questions too simple everyone's views accepted and we respect and uh, and speak graciously to one another so what do you think is he mad he was out of his mind was he bad he was a deceiver or is he god And uh, what are the consequences of that? Mihai said Jesus became his king, and he talks about all these consequences that came into his life. Lewis is arguing, and I think he's right, that the one thing you can't say about Jesus was that he's a good teacher. Because as we're gonna see, he never left that open to me. Now it amazes me, I mean amazes me, that people have opinions about Jesus and have never read Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. That amazes me. The earliest documents, all historians would say, by country, all from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first century. And people have these really strong opinions about Jesus and have never read them. I find that astonishing. And I would really encourage you to make sure you read them before you come to a final conclusion. So what I've done today, if you can find this on your table, okay, everyone should have one or maybe one between two on a few occasions. So get that out there. Is we're going to look at a passage in John's Gospel, chapter 8, of where Jesus is having a debate with the religious leaders. And they're trying to work out who he is. And, and uh, we're going to look at that and then, and then think about it a bit more. So do, do, um, do get this up. Uh, John chapter 8, 31 to 39. I'm just going to go through it bit by bit. So definitely have that in front of you. Make sure everyone on your table has one. And, uh, and we'll go through it together. Uh, it's a bit different tonight in that in that we're going to do a bit more of are just following through so look at verse 31 there let's i'll read this to the jews who had believed him jesus said if you hold to my teaching you're really my disciples then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free they answered him we are abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone how can you say that you will set us uh, you shall that we shall be set free so jesus in Jerusalem. The earlier bit of john chapter 8 tells us he's at a feast of tabernacles a famous jewish feast and there's some jewish people that say we want you to be our rabbi a teacher and uh, and jesus says well if you want to be my disciples you want to be my followers you must hold to what i say my teachings which is you must now believe not just believe in me but follow me and my teachings and they didn't expect him to say that and they took offense when he said, "Because if you hold to my teachings, I set you free," and you see that they take offence at that and say, "Well, how can you set us free? We've never been slaves." You know, these Jewish people in the first century are like people today. I'm free. Don't tell me I'm a slave to anyone. That's modern-day thinking, right? We're all free. We don't need liberating. We are free. And uh, they push back. We're Abraham's descendants, don't you know? Now there's an irony the Jewish people have been slaves multiple times. Famously in Egypt, we all know the story. Then in Babylon. And even as Jesus speaks, Jerusalem is under Roman control. So when they go, we're not slaves to anyone, they can't actually face up to reality that they're currently not free people. But Jesus isn't talking about political freedom because look at verse 34 just carry on down Jesus replied very truly I tell you everyone who sins is a slave to sin now a slave has no permanent place in the family but a son belongs to it forever so if the son sets you free you are free indeed I I know you are Abraham's descendants yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word I'm telling you what I've seen in the father's presence and you and you are doing what you heard from your father so Jesus says I'm not talking about political slavery I'm talking about slavery to sin and you notice in verse 32 there just look down he says the truth will set you free and then in verse 36 he says the Son will set you free in other words Jesus is saying he is the truth and he is the son of God and he leaves that you know on a cliffhanger my father is God he says in verse 36 God is my father um, And he says, but you don't want to know me because you have a different father. And now you can see Jesus does this time and time again. If you've ever read the Gospels, he ruffles people's feathers. (laughs) Gets under their skin. So verse 39, what do they do? Look at verse 39 down there on the page. Abraham is our father. They're really annoyed at him at this stage. Jesus says, if you're Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You were doing the works of your own father. So Jesus is saying, I have a father who's God, and you have another father. And they go, no, we have Abraham's father. And he says, no, 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 you wouldn't be trying to kill me if you were Abraham's children, if he was really your father. And... uh, and then verse 41, they protest, we are not illegitimate children. How dare you say we're not children of Abraham? And then they go from saying we're children of Abraham to look at verse 30, 41. The only father we have is God himself. So now the Jews are really trying to push Jesus. No, no, we God is our father. They've changed their tune. So then verse 42, Jesus spells it out. Read this along with me. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. So Jesus could not be clearer on his view of humanity. If Jesus, by the way, if you just think Jesus is a good moral teacher, what is his view on humanity? We are all slaves to the devil, and we're all, bondages, we're all in bondage to sin. We need rescuing from two slaveries what is the work of the devil he says murder and lies to destroy life and to bring deceit into our world so Jesus is really starting to get under their skin I mean do you think he's a good moral teacher now well look what they thought verse 48 do they think he's a good moral teacher the Jews answered him look at verse 48 aren't aren't we writing saying you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed now, to call someone a Samaritan is like being from Dublin and saying, you're from Donegal, you know? Horrendous, isn't it? You know? It's like, look, ah. <laughs> I'm joking. It's a... Uh, to call someone a Samaritan if you're a Jew is, is, is sort of, you know, this racial uh, abuse because it goes back years and years when the, the, a certain part of the Jewish people had sort of betrayed purity to the Jewish nation and, and, and inbred with the Samaritans and their practices. And so they go, you must be a Samaritan, which is just a sort of insult. And then demon-possessed, they've now changed their tune completely on him. Like they wanted to follow him, remember how the passage started? And now they go, you're demon-possessed. But the vitriol of the Jews should not surprise us. Even from people who initially thought they they knew who Jesus was. Because as one person put it, the human heart is seldom so spiteful as when it perceives its self-esteem threatened. There is almost nothing we cling to with greater vehemence than the props by which we bolster our self-image. And Jesus was really going after their self-image, their identity, who their father was, their bondage to sin, their bondage to the devil. I mean, how comfortable do you feel now as you listen to this? Good moral teacher? Samaritan, demon-possessed. They don't, we're not, we don't need saving. We don't need setting free. How dare anyone say I'm a slave to sin? What does Jesus do in reply? Verse 49, we're just going to keep going. Verse 49, I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never taste death. Do you see how Jesus' claims about himself are getting bigger and bigger? First, he says, I'm the personification and the arbiter of truth. You don't want truth because I'm speaking it, he's saying. Then he says he can set us free from a deep spiritual slavery to sin and the devil. Then he calls him God, his father, repeatedly. And now he says he can help us avoid death. Now, what's their conclusion? Verse 52, keep following down. At this they exclaimed, Now we know you are demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death are you greater than our father Abraham he died and so did the prophets who do you think you are tonight's topic people have always asked it of Jesus when they really start to get to know him you can't be a moral teacher like who do you really think you are they think he's crazy they think he's a demon possessed they think he's a Samaritan they think he's anything but they're not liking him they don't think he's God's son. And so they say, well, go on, clarify yourself. Then who do you think you are? And Jesus talks about that he's only seeking to please God. So verse 50, 54, Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, so if I try and you know, make a name for myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. He's going to make, make a name for me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus is saying, I'm not here to boost my own ego. I don't need my ego boosting. I'm not saying this because I'm some insecure person. I'm confident that God the Father will you know, be pleased with me. I'm just following him. And when he says, Abraham, looked forward to this day, he's saying, all of the Old Testament is about me. Every part of those Old Testament script, Abraham was looking for a day when the Messiah would one day come. So how did the Jews reply? Thank you for staying with me. Verse 57, the climax of the passage. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you've seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, verse 58, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, verse 59, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. The Jews say, How have you seen Abraham? You're not even 50. Abraham's 2,000 years old. And he makes a staggering claim. Look at it in verse 58. Before Abraham was born, I am. He's in Jerusalem with Jews in the temple grounds celebrating a festival. They know the Old Testament very well. There was a story in the Old Testament when a descendant of Abraham called Moses was told he was going to set God's people free from Egypt. And Moses goes, how can I do that? No, they're never going to believe me. And who should I say sent me? And Moses at the burning bush encounters God. And God says this. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, what is his name? (laughs) Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. In other words, God says to Moses, tell them that I am the God who's the very essence of being. I've always been. I always will be. I am. I'm the beginningless creator. Jesus knows what he's doing. He's with the Jews at the Jewish festival on the temple grounds debating with them about their scriptures. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. I am the eternal Christ sharing the everlasting life of the Father, the changeless Lord who towers over history, master of time, ruler of the ages, undiminished by the passing of centuries, the same yesterday, today and forever. I am. And what is their response? Well, if, you're an Old Test- if you know your Old Testament and you're a Jew, Deuteronomy chapter 13 says, If anyone claims to be God, you stone them. They know what he's claiming. So they pick up stones to kill him because that's what their law says. So let me bring this to a conclusion. Firstly, can you see that the claims Jesus makes about himself are so great and so grand? I think you have to agree with C.S. Lewis. The one option that is unavailable, that is not on the table, is to say he's a good moral teacher. I mean, what kind of good moral teacher says these kind of things? Seriously. God's my father. I'm going to set you free from the devil and from sin. I can mean you never taste death. Before Abraham existed, I am the I am that turned up to Moses in the burning bush, the beginningless creator. No. And can you see that that must have been what Jesus meant because they knew what he meant. So they pick up stones to kill him. He's Samaritan. He's demon possessed. He's a blasphemer. None of the Jews... At the time, thought, here's a great moral teacher. Samaritan, demon possessed, or a blasphemer. And can you see that if Jesus says this kind of thing, he cannot be one of many options in the world that you can choose from? All paths lead to God. We looked at it on week two, you know? Well, you choose your God, I'll choose my God, and if you choose Jesus and I choose something else, that's okay, because all past Jesus said, no, I am the arbor of truth. I am God. I'm the one that means you don't taste death. He, he's not leaving it op- optional that he's one of many options. He's saying, I'm the only option. Now, you might find that arrogant, and then you get to Lewis's point. He's mad, or he's bad, or he is that. But he's not one of many options. So what do you think? Where do you think he is? You just read John 8. What do you think? Is he mad? He could be. Is he a deceiver, is he bad, or is he really who he says he is? And let me put it like this. Let's say he's, he's not a moral teacher. You can't say he's a moral teacher after reading that. Let's say he's bad, or he's demon-possessed. I mean, just think of the influence this man has had on history as a deceiver or a lunatic one writer put it well i'm far within the mark when i say that all the armies ever marched or the navies that ever sailed or the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon the earth as that one solitary life is he really just a madman and a bad man and all of history has been dictated well not all of it, you know he's made this huge impact on history there's never there's never been anyone like him Astonishing humility with incredible courage and boldness. Great gentleness, but fearful when he gets angry at injustice. A kindness and a tenderness, but he never put up with hypocrisy. Always engaging with the outcast and the leper, and yet somehow remaining a, you know, full of truth and purity in himself. No one's ever been like him. Do you think he was just a madman or a lunatic? Maybe you do. He can't be a moral teacher. Come on. Let me finish then with the obvious question that just has to be asked. It has to be asked. Well, how do I know this is reliable? It sounds interesting, but like, you know, how do I know that John you know, didn't all make it up and, and all the rest? How do I know that the Gospels are reliable? Well, I want to just do four quick things with you. The first thing I want to do is look at the manuscript evidence. Would you have a look at this little uh, bit of paper? It's a smaller one on your tables. Uh, written by the late F.F. F. Bruce, and he put this table together in his book, uh, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? And he compares the New Testament documents compared to all ancient documents in history. And it's and, and sort of sh- he's try- he's an argument for consistency. Uh, Robin was telling me she was studying Plato today. God bless her. And uh, let's look at Plato, third one down. He wrote 427 to 347. The earliest copy we have of Plato is 900 A.D. So the time elapsed from Plato wrote to the time when we have the earliest copy is 1,200 years. How many copies do we have of Plato? Seven. Robin, did anyone in the lecture today say, we're not sure if we can trust this document? It wasn't even asked! <laughs> and yet we get this open and go, it can't be true. Let's look at the, what it says about the New Testament. It's a bit out of sync, I'm afraid, my printing. So it's the bottom line, the New Testament, written between AD, AD 40 and 100. We have manuscript fragments from 125 AD. You have some of the earliest ones in the Chester Beatty Library, which is just that way. We have a full manuscript in the, in the British Library in London that I've been to see from 300 AD. That's 25 to 310 years later, and we have 24,000. F.F. Bruce's point is brilliant. You either have to say to Plato, we can't... We've no point discussing Plato at university because we have so little of him. Or you have to go, well, if we're willing to study Plato, let's take this seriously and stop saying it was made up and twisted later. I mean, and you just go on and on and on. So, um... You know, Caesar's Gallic Wars or, or Suetonius or, you know, Tacitus. Tacitus wrote, you know, the was it Livy or Tacitus? No, Livy, I think, wrote the Roman history of all the Roman emperors. You know, there's 12 or 13 Roman emperors, and that's what we know most about the Roman. Uh, you know, we get a lot of our history of Rome from him. And he wrote AD 75 to AD 160. The earliest copy is 950 AD, and there's uh, 800 years later, and we have eight copies. You know, do you believe in the Roman emperors? You know, when you went through Roman history in schools, you go, oh, that makes sense, that Roman emperor. We've got Domitian and we've got Nero. How do you know about them? Because people like Tacitus and Livy wrote, and we studied them in history. So F.F. F. Bruce's point is have consistency. If you're gonna trust anything in ancient history, you have to trust the Bible or the New Testament more than everything else, because it's unparalleled in its documents. Secondly, think about it. Does it look like a myth? Like John chapter eight, you know the classic argument is well, it's just made up. The disciples were sort of heartbroken after Jesus died, so they made up all these myths to sort of comfort their hearts because they wanted to believe in some spiritual resurrection. That's the kind of argument that goes along in liberal theology today. You each to it. That doesn't sound like a myth. It's like a heated debate. It's complicated. It's awkward. It's I don't to, I don't understand all of it. You know, a myth is you know there's a dragon and there's a princess and the princess has captured the dragon. But there's a knight and there's a knight in shining armour and against all the it, that's not written like a myth. It's written like history, because it is history. John's an eyewitness evidence. White, you know eye, 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 he's an eyewitness giving evidence. It doesn't read like a myth. If you know ancient myths, this reads nothing like it. Even modern myths. One of the things about myths as well that's interesting is that myths don't give you insignificant detail. You know, a myth is all about some great story that sort of keeps you captivated in a very sort of simple way, you know, Shrek or something, you know. But it it, it doesn't give you insignificant detail. And what's interesting about the, the, the New Testament is it contains lots of details that are absolutely irrelevant to the story Insignificant detail that end up being validated by archaeology. Which shows you that the intention of the writers is not to make up a myth, but to record history. Insignificant detail adds nothing to the story, but it ends up being verified by archaeology today, which just shows you the intention of the author. So here's an example, John 5, I haven't read it, it's on the screen, sometime later. Jesus went to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now in Jerusalem, near the Sheep gates. there was a pool, which in Aramaic is called Beth- Beth- Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades, you know, big columns. Uh, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lay, and the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And eventually this man is healed by Jesus, goes the story. What's interesting is for years, you know, the, the, the secular... Uh, historians used to go, well, we know the Bible's not true because we've never discovered a place called Bethesda. And, you know, how do we know this miracle ever happened if, you know, we've, this town, we've never, we've never sort of found it in our excavations, you know? And then years later, after all this sort of criticism at this part of the, of the scriptures, um, they did do an excavation in that part of Israel. And uh, even though there was no other part of history, and no record, no archaeology up to that point, they found a town with a pool the town had some writing called bethesda and there were not three not four not seven but five colonnades did jesus heal the man well we don't know did john write history yes because it's, it's verified thousands of years later that what john wrote is true so donald wiseman the professor of archaeology at london university writes no fact of archaeology so discovered contradicts the biblical record third point what did john gain from making up this really complicated myth right what did he gain you know lots of people invent things for personal glory and fame and money and, and whatever else but you know the, the gospels you know and later history and and, the, and people like uh, uh, pat was going to quote him in mean, his talk i can't remember which one tacitus ends up talking about how you know there was just lots of persecution about those early early christians so they made up something that just got them persecuted. And the p- disciples portray themselves in bad light. They're continually lacking faith. They continually miss it. And they're willing to suffer. John Stott says, it's, it is, if anything is clear from the Gospels, the apostles were sincere. They may have been deceived, if you like, but they were not deceivers. Hypocrites and martyrs are not made of the same stuff. And then fourthly, well, who was John? Well, he was a Jew, and he was a friend of Jesus. The last people you're ever going to get to believe that you're the son of God are Jews. That's why they want to kill him. They just can't get their heads around it because they've been told from the ancient scriptures they had, you know, nothing on earth could be God. Don't worship an idol. Nothing in this world could be God. God's outside of earth. And yet John, a Jew, is persuaded. But if a Jew's hard enough to persuade that, you know, and have their worldview completely shattered and changed that Jesus is God. Your friends? No, your friends know you. Isn't it amazing in verses at 46? Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? John lived with him, ate with him, talked with him, saw him all day as his friend. And John later records, well, John couldn't prove him guilty of any sin. He lived a perfect life. So you have to then conclude, well, is John being this horrible deceiver? Is he radically deceived? Or is he just recording history? So what about you? What do you think of Jesus? I'm just putting the evidence before you and you might have some good questions and we'll discuss them. But here's a final thought. As I've looked at my reasons for grappling with Jesus over many, many years, it, evidence is important, but it wasn't evidence stopping me follow Jesus. It was the claims the, the claims and the consequences that that was going to mean in my life. It's one of the things go intellectually, okay, I could kind of get my head around Jesus being God, but then when you say that and then you have to do what Mihai did instead I have to make him king of my life, he put him in charge. Well, the Jews didn't want that, did they? Because they were going to have to change things and they didn't want to change things. It's our pride. It's the idea of surrendering everything. It's, it's giving over our life to him and saying, well, I'm going to have to change certain things in my life. Well, I so it's not intellectual it's something about a cost that's going to have to be counted Jesus says we're slaves to sin when you're a slave it's hard to get out of that isn't it and so we live for something that we think is going to give us happiness and joy and peace and satisfaction and hope and a future and we say that's what's going to give me and Jesus says you have to give that up but giving it up is really finding freedom but you have to trust him for that freedom that what you give up will end up being worth it and you'll find something greater in him so let me ask you this question to finish is it really something intellectual stopping you following jesus or do you have something to lose by following him that you're not sure you want to give up that's been my experience thanks for listening